We're in 1 John chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 11 through 18. 1 John chapter 3. Well, as we work through the letter of 1 John, remember this is a pastoral letter. This is, um, if you can imagine, um, sort of the last words of a pastor to his congregation, the last words of a father to his children as he's preparing them for their you know, departure, where a father would no longer be with uh, their children. So it's a sweet letter. It's a very sweet letter. The, the, the words for children or little child is mentioned numerous times. Uh, almost every paragraph you, you see that he adds that phrase, little child or, or children. He actually even ends the, the very last verse of the letter, letter, little children, keep yourself from idols. That's the last statement he makes. So this is a caring letter. It's a letter from a father figure, this pastor figure to his church. And these are the words he wants to leave them with. And and the major theme of this letter is assurance. That they would know that they are secure in their salvation. That they are in Christ. So we're looking at verses 11 through verse 18. The theme being love one another. This idea of brotherly love for Christians to love one another. Um, we've seen that he's called us children of God. So, but he's building this theme that we are part of a community. That, that the Christian life is not meant to go it alone. You're not a lone ranger in the faith. But you're to be together with other believers. So if you would please stand. We're going to read. If you're able, please stand. We're going to read in verse 11 through 18. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning? May it change us. May it uh, put us on a course of praise and adoration for Christ. Help us to love one another as your word commands us to do. May we take these words and may they, by the Holy Spirit, transform us by your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start with a little music trivia this morning. For you music fans, rock and roll fans out there, I'm going to start from a verse, the first verse of the song, and I want you to see if you can figure out what song it's from. Love wounds and marks any heart not tough or strong enough to take a lot of pain, to take a lot of pain. Love is like a cloud, holds a lot of rain. Love hurts. Oh, oh, love hurts. 
I just gave it away there at the end. Love Hurts. <laughs> Love Hurts. It's by the Everly Brothers from 1960, but also most people know the, the version from 1975 by the band Nazareth. So there you go. Trivia. But this, I'm starting with this because there's a lot of truth in that song that if you're going to love, you're going to hurt. If you're going to love, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience loss. Well, maybe you're young here this morning and maybe some of the first loss or pain regarding love was losing a pet. I remember being young and and burying our dog in our backyard, tears streaming down my cheeks as I was uh, grieving the loss of a pet. Uh, and as you grew up, perhaps you remember the first funeral you ever went to, maybe was, was losing a grandparent. But love requires pain, does it not? We're going to go through that in life. And there's a temptation for us to avoid that pain. There's a temptation to say, no, I'm not going to love. I don't want to be, I don't want to have relationships. I want to guard myself from that sort of pain. In this book, Untangling Emotions, I wanted to read just a quick quote. This is called Untangling Emotions from um, Alistair Groves and Winston Smith. They write that the scripture is full of aching, grieving saints who tear their clothes and sit in the ashes when their world gets upended. The basic logic in the Bible is this. If you care about others and the kingdom and mission of God in this world, you will be and you should be full of sorrow when you or those you love are injured, suffer loss, or die. You ought to feel angry in the presence of injustice. Your heart should beat faster when your family is in danger. As counterintuitive as it seems, awful feelings like grief can actually be exactly the right feelings to have, feelings that honor God and would be wrong not to feel. So when we love We're opening ourselves up to being vulnerable, opening ourselves up to being being hurt. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, I thought he made a a huge insightful um, insight into this. He says, there is no safe investment when talking about love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and anxieties of love is hell. So what he's saying is, 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 if you don't love, if you don't open yourself to love, you, your heart will harden, right? You will become within that selfishness, you will, you will not be able to love. And that, essentially, is what he's saying, damnation. That is hell. But we're called to love. The command in our passage is to love. So God is actually telling us to enter pain. 
right? If he's calling us to love, he's actually calling us to be vulnerable and to, and to experience tragedy. And not just, not just experience it, but to lean into it. Remember what he says, Jesus laid down his life so we are to lay down our lives. To lean into that, that sacrificial kind of love. That's what he's calling us to. So it's not light, it's not easy. He's calling us to something very difficult. But it's an essential part of growing as a believer. So we're going to look at love. We're going to ask three questions of the text. Who do we love? How do we love? And why do we love? Those are the three questions we're asking. Who do we love? How do we love? And why do we love? Let's look at what the text tells us about who do we love. Who are we to love in this text? Well, the phrases each other and the brothers are mentioned numerous times. Look at verse 11, 14, 16, and 17. That we should love one another. That we, what he is directing us to It's not just love for our neighbor, which certainly we are called to, but love for our fellow Christians. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what this is talking about. I'm reminded of Acts Acts 2, verse 44, where it talks about the early church in the years just following Jesus' death. It says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes and they received their food and glad, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day whose were being saved. They were a community who sacrificed and loved each other and it meant something, it meant something. And so we're called to love our fellow Christians, but we're especially called to love the church we're a part of. We're especially called to love the church we've taken vows to. Galatians six ten says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That that's our priority, right? The household of faith. And I know I... I've been talking about church membership a lot lately. I'm going to talk about it again today because that's where the text is taking us. Because this is about church membership. If you've taken membership vows here at Hope, you're especially called by God to love your fellow members of this church. So you're to be in their lives. You're to make sure their needs are met. You're to make sure they're walking in faith. You're to weep with them. You're to rejoice with them. And if you're not a member of any local church, this command is hard to live out. Right? If you're not tied into a church, how do you fully live this out? I would argue you can't fully live this out because you haven't taken vows. You haven't committed yourself to this. And this is not the first time that John's going to talk about loving one another and, and hearkening back to Jesus' command to love one another. He's, he does it six times. This is the first of six times in this passage. So ask yourself this question this morning. How well am I positioned to love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How well positioned are you in your life? Are you making time to do that? And are you a member? But we're also told in this, who do we love, that we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. Look at verse 12 and 13. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, going back to that story of Cain and Abel, Cain uh, knew that his offering was not done in faith. He knew that it was evil. He knew that it was not righteous. And he knew Abel's was. And that's what made him mad. You see, there's, there's something about evil knowing that there is righteousness, knowing that, that uh, there is a good in the world and hating that, being jealous of it, being envious of it. Jealousy, envy, hatred leads to murder. And didn't we see that this past Tuesday in Texas? Jealousy, envy, hatred, unrighteousness, evil exists, it leads to murder. And you know, Christians have experienced this hatred ever since the beginning. Tim Keller writes that when coming to a town, a country, home, early Christians didn't honor the particular gods of that town. Every town in the ancient world had a particular god or gods that it worshipped. And Christians wouldn't, wouldn't worship those gods. And so it was seen in that town as an assault on the dignity of that particular people, that particular population. So loving others wasn't just enough. If they didn't accept their worldview, pagans persecuted Christians. Does that sound similar today? If you don't acknowledge every worldview, every identity, you will be persecuted. It was the same thing in the ancient world. No, apologetics is necessary. Defending the faith is necessary. But the greatest argument for Christianity is saints who love. And the greatest argument against Christianity are hypocrites who pretend to love. Right? Our relationship with the culture is the greatest argument for our faith and the greatest argument against our faith, the way we relate to the culture and the world around us. There's a really, I love history, there's a really interesting document from a man named Aristides to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And he's writing this in his letter to Emperor Hadrian about early Christians. This is about 124 AD. And I'll read just a, a portion of this. He says, Talking about Christians. This was not a Christian. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother, for they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them accordingly to his ability gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if there's any among them that's poor and needy, and if they have no food to spare, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. So this is, this is non, you know, extra biblical witness to Christians at 124 AD of their giving, of their loving. But you know, the Bible goes even beyond love for the brothers and sisters in Christ that we're counterculturally required by Jesus to love our enemies, right? Not just to love those who love us or who are good, but to love those that are against us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But who are my enemies? Who are your enemies? Do you have any real enemies? If you can't think of true enemies that are against you, think of the people in your life who you really don't care to be around. Do you think of anybody? 
The people that annoy you. The people that make it awkward and tense to have a discussion. Maybe the people at Thanksgiving or Christmas. The people who you really don't like. John says, love them. John says, lay down your life. Jesus says, love your enemies and those who persecute you. So that's a brief discussion about who we're to love. But secondly, how do we love? How are we called to love in this passage? Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Look at that phrase, yet closes his heart against him. So the opposite of that is supposed to be, is true, right? That we are to love with open hearts. Not closed hearts, but open hearts. And we're to take special care for those in need. James two fifteen says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, it's one of the reasons we ask our members to tithe, to hope, because that, that tithe, that 10% of your income, goes to the church so that we can run things here, so we can have lights on, but also so that we can give to those in need in our body first and then in our community. That is a great way to take care of your brother and sister in Christ. Just tithing, right? Practically tithing giving a tenth of all you have. Sean O'Donnell says, Brotherly love is as tangible as a roof over the head, as edible as bread on the table, and as foundational as shoes on the feet. It's, it's, as, it's, as, it's as tangible as those things, as those physical needs. But look at verse 18. We're also called in this way, uh, that we are to love in truth. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What he's saying there, what he's communicating is that not only word and talk, we're not only supposed to say we love others, but in action and in righteousness. John's making sure that we're not just in love with the concept of love, but we're actually loving others around us, that we love others with our actions and not just our words and good intentions. So what does it look like just practically to, to love others at hope here at our church? Well, it looks like this, serving in the nursery, in the children's church, in Sunday school, taking out the dirty diapers. It looks like volunteering at VBS in July. It looks like asking a person you haven't seen in a while how they're doing. It's a hug when someone's grieving over loss. It's a meal when somebody's been in a hospital or just had a baby. It's a simple acknowledgement of someone's existence. It's a how are you? It's it's a glad you're he- I'm glad you're here. It's a hey man, I can see you're struggling right now. Do you want to grab coffee or get lunch and talk about it? It's showing up when help is needed and it's showing up even when it's not asked for. Love is an action, not simply a concept. It's movement away from selfishness and toward the needs of others. But in in this discussion about how do we love, in the 21st century, I think it's important to talk about how do we love online as well. We live a lot of our lives online. Social media, texting, tweeting. And I found a good article on this by Matt Smethers titled, Four Ways Not to Be a Jerk Online. He says, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 12 
On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. He says, I believe we will also give an account for what we share on social media. This warning should cause us to vet our sources carefully and not share when in doubt. All of our communication should glorify God, which means that there may be some things we choose not to share, even if they prove true in the end. The first thing he says is this, take typed words seriously. The reality is when we stand before the King Jesus, our online selves will be held to account. Our online selves are our real selves, after all. So I would ask you this. Before you send that text, before you retweet something, before you share something on Facebook, say this. Would I be comfortable saying these words in public? What I'm writing online, what I'm typing, would I be comfortable saying this to everybody to see? Take typed words seriously. Secondly, he says, humanize the other tribe. So, so there are people who you genuinely disagree with out there. And he says, when people cease to be people because they are to us merely representatives or mouthpieces of positions that we want to eradicate, then we in our zeal to win have sacrificed empathy. We've declined the opportunity to understand other people's desires, principles, fears, and that is a great price to pay for supposed victory in debate. Simply, it's this, it's this idea. Remember the image of God in everybody, even if you disagree intensely over an issue. And it doesn't mean we need to downplay truth. But love remembers this, that people are far more than the sum of their sometimes mistaken positions. We actually talked about this in the justice class in Sunday school. The image they bear does not ride on the views they hold. He says, thirdly, give the benefit of the doubt. He says, one of today's most insidious temptations amplified by social media is to slander and to shame. Why assume the best, we quietly think? Why not pile on? It's not like they know me. Plus, there are retweets to be had. The word slanderer appears 34 times in the Bible as a designation for the devil. He is the great accuser. So mirroring his methods on social media is not is not um, unfortunate. It's not mistaken. It's satanic. So we need to be careful about slander on social media. And I can't tell you how often I see debate on social media and accusations get hurled around with ease. Assumptions get made about a person and what they believe. We're so quick to lump people into categories that we reject and we're slow to give the benefit of the doubt. So I'll tell you this. I know it's tempting to engage in online debate but I'd encourage you to meet people face-to-face if you have a genuine issue with someone. And that's, that goes for anybody in your family. When you're thinking about texting someone about an issue, when you think about it, being face-to-face might be better. Often when you're face-to-face, not always, but often, cooler heads prevail. So, so be careful about assuming things about people. And lastly, he says, encourage liberally. Encourage liberally. Biblical encouragement is a rare currency these days. Therefore, it's deeply valuable. Assuming the best, seeing the best, and identifying the best in others to the praise of God's grace isn't natural for self-absorbed sinners like us. It requires self-forgetfulness, but it showcases a more excellent way. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said that a humble Christian studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies. So if we reverse that order, studying our own excellencies and another's infirmities will likely grow a platform 
but we might just lose our souls, he says. So how much genuine encouragement, encouragement do you see online when you're on Facebook, when you're on... How much encouragement do you see? And when you do see it does, it, does it stand out? It should. And it's not just online, but in face-to-face conversations, are you an encourager? So, so really, I bring it down to these two ideas when you're talking about online stuff, is encourage others and don't engage in slander. Right? We need to really be careful about how we're presenting ourselves as believers online. But there's a countercultural way how we love and that is to love sacrificially look at verse 16 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers that there is a sacrificial uh, emphasis to our love martin lloyd jones says love overcomes obstacles and excuses It sees beyond what it does not like and minimizes it in order to see the person who is at the back of it. And friends, I want to distinguish between something. Loving and liking are not the same. They're two different things. And I've got a a pastorally impatient point to make this morning. I'm going to try not to be too impatient about it. But I grow very impatient when I hear this from people. I really don't like the people in my church. They annoy me. I just don't like them. I just don't think I can engage or be in community because I just don't have anything in common with them. I I get impatient with that because we're not called to like our fellow brothers and sisters. We're called to love them. That is the command. You know, we can come up with excuse after excuse of why we don't like people in our church. But believer, that's not what you're called to. You're not called to like them. You're called to love them. We're not called to enjoy all they enjoy, have all the same hobbies, talk the same, joke the same. We're called to sacrificially love those who are not like us. And yet Jesus knows and loves them just the same. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, Love penetrates beyond the ugliness and the unattractiveness and it seeks out something. To love those whom we do not like means that we treat them as if we did like them. To choose to act kindly toward them even though we do not like them. The Bible does not ask us to like the brethren. It asks us to love them. And to love them means that we treat them exactly as if we did like them. Now the women, men and women of the world do not do that. If they do not like people, they treat them accordingly and have nothing to do with them. But Christian love means that we look beyond that. We see the Christian in them, the brother or sister, and we go beyond what we do not like and we help that person. And friends, let me, let me say this. You'll actually be surprised that you will start to like the people you move toward and love. You'll actually start to like them. If you make it a point to love someone whom you have really not a lot in common with, you will end up liking them because you've devoted to loving them. And, and that is the message of the gospel as well, that we were not lovely, that we were not likable. In fact, we were sinners, ungodly, but Christ moved toward us in love. And we're called to do the same thing for our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. So don't get those two things confused, liking and loving. And remember, we have, with a brother and sister, even that we 
kind of struggle to like, we have more in common with them because of the blood of Christ than we do with our friends that are not Christians. We have more in common with them. So just remember that. We're to love sacrificially. Lastly, why do we love? Third point, why do we love? Look at verse 11. It gives us about three reasons for why we should love. He says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What does he mean by this is the message that we've heard from the beginning? What he's saying there, this is what Jesus preached. This is what Jesus taught. That this was the original message of Jesus' gospel. And if it came at the beginning, it's core to the message of our faith. That we're to love one another. And that he has loved us. The core application of the gospel is to love others because God is love. And for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. That's the core message of the gospel. Love is at the center of who God is. It's at the center of what the gospel is all about. In John 15, verse 12, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So that's the first thing, that we, is, we've heard this message from the beginning. It's central to the gospel. It's central to our faith. Secondly, he says in verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. So that's really the second major reason why we should love. It's that we've passed from death into life. That Christians aren't just trying to be better people. That we're not just trying to be a little bit better than we were before or or lifting ourselves up from our bootstraps. But we've actually been taken out of death into life. That there's a transfer that has happened for the believer. That we're not just trying to be better people. This, this isn't a, a, a message or a faith or a religion of, of good advice or self-help. It's a message of transformation. It's a message of death to life through the gospel. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you know, the Christian life can really be summed up in three words. And the Heidelberg Catechism actually structures itself based upon these three words. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. That we are, as Christians, guilty of our sins. That we do not deserve any favor with God, any grace with God. We are sinners. We've rejected Him. We've rebelled against Him. That is the death that we're all born into. But then we're given grace in Christ that as we trust in Him, as we believe in what His, his work has done for us, that we're forgiven and we're brought into His family. That's the grace. And then how do we live the rest of the Christian life? Not out of guilt, right? Not out of earning anything, but out of gratitude. That's how we live the rest of the Christian life. That we love because He first loved us. Out of gratitude, not out of guilt. And you know what? Nothing, nothing in the Christian life can be sustained for long if it's driven by guilt. If you're trying just every day, day after day, to do your best and to stay in the faith, and motivate yourself by guilt, you'll never sustain love. Love can be sustained and grow stronger and stronger if it's driven by gratitude for what Christ has done for you. That is how that works. And why do we love ultimately? Again, it's centered here again in verse 16. By this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us. See, the logic in John's passage here is that hate leads to murder, which is ultimately death, right? Eternal death. But what God tells us to do is to love, which leads to saving and sacrificing for others, which leads to eternal life. And what's ironic and what's counterintuitive is that for the Christian, we actually enter into pain. We enter into death for other people, not, not um, murdering and leading it in that direction, but actually dying for people, actually sacrificing for people so that it points everyone to the love of God that he's shown to us. This is the ultimate reason of why we love, because we've been loved so much by God. The greatest act of love the world has ever known is the eternal Son of God putting on a human body and dying a criminal's death for sinners like you and me. That's the motivation. That is the ultimate motivation. And that will lift you up and give you the freedom to love others for the rest of your life. True love sacrifices itself so that others may live. I love the story in Luke 7, as I'm closing up here. Luke 7, the woman prostitute comes to the, the meal where Jesus is with the Pharisees and she um, you know, cleans his feet, pours the perfume out, um, dries with her tears, dries, washes his feet, and then dries with her hair. And the Pharisees are astounded that he would allow her to do this. And he explains to them that he or she who's been forgiven much will love much. But he or, or she who's been forgiven little will love little. If you know, believer, how much you've been forgiven and, and the great debt you owed God, and he laid down his life and sacrificed for you, won't you love much? Won't that be the motivating factor of your life to love much? We will love much, friends, if we see how much Christ has done for us. That is the principle we must preach to ourselves every single day as we strive to lay down our lives for our brothers. Would Would you please pray with me? Father, would you remind us yet again of the gospel every single day that it's not about our love really ultimately to you, it's, it's about your love to us. It's about Christ, it's about the cross, it's about Jesus laying down his life for us, giving us not only a model, but a motivation, but an actual sacrifice, an atoning death that saved a people while he was on the cross, bearing our sins. Father, how amazing is that? How amazing is the gospel? Would you help us to live a life engaged in service to one another, engaged in laying down our lives sacrificially for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Help us in that task. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.